Well, good morning, church. My name is Ryan Vanzant. I serve at our Spring Branch campus, and uh, I am super excited to get to be with you here this morning. Uh, this is actually my first time to be at Cyprus on a Sunday morning, and uh, it's great. I've heard great things, but I was starting to wonder if you guys actually existed, and so this is good for me. I'm a little bit of a skeptic, but it's good to be here. And uh, thanks tonight. I heard the crowd was interactive. Uh, I don't know if that's just Johnny or if that's all you guys. Uh, But, you know, I I was expecting it to be or feel a little bit different in here. Uh, But I think what I'm really struck by this morning as we worship is uh, what's similar. And it's that core radical focus on Jesus. So thank you all so much for letting me share and worship with you guys this morning. Uh, I'm also super excited as we kick off this new series in the book of James. Uh, James is an incredible book. There's so much here. Uh, When Johnny first told me, hey, you're going to be teaching chapter one, uh, my first thought was, okay, how many weeks do I have? Uh, Because this passage is so dense. There's so much here that's rich. And so I'm going to do my best. We're going to read it. Uh, We're going to try to go through it all. Uh, But really the challenge for you this week is going to be uh, going back through this, reading it, uh, letting God speak to your heart and stir up in you. Uh, But I really think James is such an incredible book uh, for this moment in the life of our church. Right? James is writing pretty early on uh, after Jesus has gone after Jesus is gone. And, um, you know, it's this time of turmoil for the early Christians. Uh, We read in in Acts 8 how uh, the Christians are there in Jerusalem and how persecution uh, breaks out, starting with the the death of Stephen, one of the church leaders, and uh, persecution just hits. Uh, And in that, it says that the Christians, they scatter out from Jerusalem, and they settle in different towns of Judea and Samaria. But just think about this, man. They've been uh, attacked, right? They faced trial and persecution. They've scattered. Now they are disconnected from their community. They're disconnected from their leaders. And they're settling in these new places, having left behind communities and possessions, their homes, Maybe they've lost family members, certainly have lost friends, and they're just trying to find a new normal with this new faith that they have. You know, it's a a perilous time for the Christian faith. And it's into that that James writes. And you know, I think chapter one in particular is a great, passage for right now, and as I've been reading it and studying it this week, uh, it's just called my attention to a few patterns in my life uh, from this last year. And I think there were patterns that already existed, uh, but something about the last 16 months or so uh, had the effect of turning up the volume. I've heard it said that whatever people struggle with, they've tended to struggle with more in this last year. And you know, if you'd asked me, Ryan, did you experience many trials in 2020? I just said, yeah, I experienced a lot of trials, a lot of different trials. But as I've thought about it, it's not so much that I experienced a bunch of different trials. It's more like I experienced 
one trial with just some commercial breaks, right? Like those moments where you're like, all right, like I've learned, I've figured it out. God, thank you for this difficult circumstance. Uh, let's move on. And then something happens, and then I'm like right back where I started. You know, and I, I read a lot in this last year, and uh, spent a lot of time in scripture, and I kept feeling like God was calling my attentions to the same thing like every few weeks. Like I'd read something, be like, oh man, that, that stings, that hurts, I need to start living that. And I would dwell on it for a few days, and then I'd forget, I'd move on, and then God would call my attention like right back to that same lesson. I don't know if y'all have ever been in this season where it just feels like you're stuck on repeat, where you have your trials, your circumstances, or what God's speaking to you in his word. It just feels like it's the same things over and over again. It's frustrating. It's like, God, I get it. I'm ready to move on. And I think a lot of us are ready to move on. And, you know, in, in James 1, there are two words uh, that really stand out. And they are enduring and persevering, or endurance and perseverance. And we hear those words, and we often think about uh, moving. We think about uh, how far can you go? How far can you push yourself past your limits? And what's interesting about these words in the Greek, and I'm not a Greek expert or anything, is that they both have the same root word. And it's the word minnow. It means remain or abide. So when Jesus says, abide in me or remain in me, that's the word he uses. Or in the book of Acts, when Paul remains in his house for two years, same word. You know, isn't it just like Jesus in his upside down kingdom where weakness is strength, where being last is being first, that we would actually move on by remaining. That's where we're heading this morning. So let's read, starting in James chapter one, verse one. He writes this, James, a servant of God, and of the Lord Jesus Christ, the 12 tribes dispersed abroad, greetings. Consider it a great joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you experience various trials, because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its full effect, so that you may be mature and complete, lacking nothing. Now, if any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives to all generously and ungrudgingly, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith without doubting, for the doubter is like the surging sea, driven and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord, being double-minded and unstable in all his ways. Let the brother of humble circumstances boast in his exaltation, but let the rich boast in his humiliation, because he will pass away like a flower of the field. For the sun rises, and together with a scorching wind, dries up the grass, its flowers fall off, and its beautiful appearance perishes. In the same way, the rich person will wither away while pursuing his activities. Blessed is the one who endures trials, because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. 
No one undergoing a trial should say, I am being tempted by God. Since God is not tempted by evil, and he doesn't tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when he is drawn away and enticed by his own evil desire. Then, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to death. And when sin is fully grown, it gives birth to death. Don't be deceived, my brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, who does not change like the shifting shadows. By his own choice, he gave us birth by the word of truth so that we would be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. My dear brothers and sisters, understand this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to anger, for human anger does not accomplish God's righteousness. Therefore, ridding yourselves of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent, humbly receive the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Because if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like someone looking at his own face in a mirror. For he looks at himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of person he was. But the one who looks intently into the perfect law of freedom and perseveres in it is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer who works. This person will be blessed in what he does. If anyone thinks he is religious without controlling his tongue, his religion is useless, and he deceives himself. Pure and undefiled religion before the God the Father is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your goodness. We thank you that you're here with us this morning. Lord, we give you our hearts. We give you our attention. Would you give us understanding? And if you would, just for a moment, would you keep your eyes closed and head bowed? Uh, Would you just pray, first of all, that God would raise our awareness of his presence here? Second, would you pray that God would raise our expectations for what his word can accomplish? Well, Father, we love you. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Well, I know most of our students are finishing up school this week and are excited to launch into summer. And I was talking to some college students recently, and they were telling me about uh, finals that they were studying for and taking. And uh, I was just having like PTSD flashbacks (laughs) to college finals. Uh, But I also remember that joy, that 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 rush of when you finish your last final and like you're walking across campus and it is just such an amazing feeling. And uh, there's very little in the adult life that can replicate that, right? Like that's a great joy. And notice that it's a great joy that comes after we're done, 
right, once the test is behind us, right? Maybe a little before the grade comes back, but after the test is behind us. And James starts off this passage saying, consider it a great joy. Not after you face trials, but what does he say? When you face trials. The joy and the facing are simultaneously. How can that be? He tells us why we can have joy, verses three and four. Because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance and let endurance have its full effect so that you may be mature and complete, lacking nothing. I think what James would have us see is that we can have joy in trials because of what God is producing, what God is bringing about. Uh, Most people, when they think of what trials uh, produce, they, they would probably say resilience, right? Uh, this last week, I was at a restaurant and uh, in the bathroom, and this is true, uh, there was a poster and it had a ship on it and it says, stormy seas make strong sailors. And it's a cool poster. It's like a good, great quote, uh, but I don't really understand why it was in the bathroom. <laughs> like, I'm not sure who's looking for that extra motivation. And uh, I'm pretty sure we're all hoping for calm seas in that moment. (laughs) But you know, we hear this idea a lot in our culture, Uh, right? It's probably best summed up in this quote, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger, right? And so what the world tells us is that as we face difficult scenarios, that it's going to make us tougher. It's going to make us more resilient, more capable, Uh, Maybe you've heard that idea. Maybe you live by that idea. Uh, But that's not actually what James says. Uh, Rather, God uses trials, James tells us, to bring about maturity and completeness. And I want to look at both of those for a moment. Uh, First, when it comes to maturity, uh, there are a lot of ways that we can measure it. Right? But when it comes to spiritual maturity, there are some very specific markers that we see in the New Testament. Uh, Peter, writing in 1 Peter, says, Don't be conformed to the desires you had in your former ignorance. Paul hits the same idea, Ephesians chapter 2, saying how at one point, like children of wrath, we were controlled by our desires and gratifying our flesh. Uh, so immaturity then is marked by the control that our desires or our impulses have over us. Uh, If you've raised kids, you already know this. Uh, We haven't raised kids, uh, but we do have a dog, and she has absolutely zero impulse control. Uh, Our dog, Reese, she's a Border Collie lab mix, and she lives by one kind of set of parameters. Uh, I want this, I want it now, and if I have it, I want more, right? And we're either the best dog parents or the worst because we give it to her. And uh, look, I'm not looking to be dog shamed this morning, so save your training videos. I've seen them. But here's the thing. Maturity produced by trials then is such that we are free from the control of our desires. The second thing trials bring about for us is completeness. And he tells us what that means. It's lacking nothing. Simply put, nothing is left behind. Nothing is left on the table. And I imagine that's a really encouraging word for people who have just left so much behind as they've spread out 
from Jerusalem because of this persecution. And I think in life, when we face trials, there's often this element of loss of what we've left. But James would have us see that God is using this trial to produce completeness, that we are able to receive, we are positioned to receive all that God desires for us to have. So trials then aren't designed to make us tougher. Their purpose is to make us more satisfied, more mature in our desires, and complete, equipped with all that God wants us to have. And we can have joy because we know God is working towards that end. Joy is the first part of the equation. Uh, But as we head into the next section, we see that there is something else James wants us to have as we face trials. Verse 5. Now, if any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives to all generously and ungrudgingly, and it will be given to him. Uh, I know this is a favorite passage for a lot of people, right? Like, this is a really secure promise. And while I do think it applies generally, right, like wisdom in our workplace, wisdom in raising kids, wisdom in navigating relationships, uh, I think what James specifically wants us to see is that we need wisdom to understand how God is working in trials. We're going to camp out here for a bit because I think this is really critical for us to understand Uh, First, notice in verses six through eight, he tells us to ask in faith without doubting. And then later on, the person who doubts should not to expect to receive wisdom or anything from the Lord. And what this communicates is that this is a wisdom that proceeds from faith rather than a wisdom that produces faith. And that's a really important distinction. It's the difference between, God, I don't understand what's happening, and you're going to need to explain it to me step by step before I'm going to trust you. Versus, God, I trust that you are good, and you do good, and you are working towards your good purposes. Help me to see that so that I can join you in your work. I think that's the wisdom that God provides. The question we often face, or we often ask when we face trials is, why am I facing this? Why am I experiencing this? And when that's our question, we often look for someone to blame. Maybe we blame ourselves, and we feel shame or guilt. Maybe we find someone else to blame. And we feel resentful, whether that's a person, our spouse, God, a system. But with God's wisdom, I think he takes our attention off of the external and he directs our focus internal, not to guilt us or to shame us, but to reveal Because whatever is happening outside of us, the real trial, the real testing takes place at the heart level. And it turns out that's an area we're not as familiar with as we may think we are. 
In Proverbs, uh, Solomon writes, all a person's ways seem pure to them, but motives, that's the heart level, are weighed by the Lord. Jeremiah says the same thing. Jeremiah 17, verse 9, the heart is deceitful above all things. Who can cure it? Then Jeremiah asks this question, who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and examine the mind to reward each person according to their conduct, according to what their deeds deserve. So look, it doesn't matter how well we think we know ourselves or how many personality tests we've taken or which office character you are. There's a space in here that we have a hard time navigating. There are depths that thankfully God examines and dredges up so that we're able to see what it is that's there. And then I think we can ask the right question, not why am I experiencing this trial, but rather why is this trial or these circumstances making me uncomfortable? Verse 14 Each person is tried when he is drawn away and enticed by his desires. And I like the ESV for this verse. Uh, You may have in your version where it's translated as evil desires. Uh, But the word for evil actually isn't in there. And I get what they mean, but I think putting it in risks communicating something inaccurate. Uh, Namely that all of our desires are always bad. And that can just lead us to some really squirrely theology where uh, God wants us to be miserable, right? But that's not true. When we look at scripture, we see that God actually meets our desires. Psalm 145, God opens his hand and satisfies the desires of every living creature. Or it says in Psalm 37, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you what? The desires of your heart. Does that mean all of our desires are good? No but they're not all bad either. For example, uh, desires like security or comfort or approval, even power or wanting to be great, right? We might hear those and think, oh man, a Christian should not want those things. So if I feel it, I just need to shove it down and hope it goes away. The reality is that those are all desires. Scripture tells us can be satisfied in God. God gives us security. He's our comforter. We aim to please him. He gives us power by his spirit. Jesus tells his disciples, hey, if any of you wants to be great, here's how, by becoming a servant. It's not that all our desires are bad. It's are your desires driving your life and where are they taking you? The problem James points to in verse 14 is when we let our desires lead us astray to seek satisfaction in things apart from God. The Bible has a word for this. It's idolatry. And at its root, idolatry has to do with a transaction. In order to have your desire met, right, there's something that you give 
And I think a lot of us in today's world, we have a hard time understanding the appeal of bowing to a little statue. But at the root, it's the desire that's being satisfied apart from God. And here's where trials come in. And I think this is why we need wisdom to understand how God is working. Wisdom gives us a new framework to understand what's happening. And maybe not every trial, but I think oftentimes what happens in trials is that there is a desire in our heart and there's something apart from God that we are going to in order to have that desire met. There's a transaction and God in his love and grace allows some obstruction to get in the way between our heart and the thing that was satisfying us. I think that's what makes us uncomfortable in trials. That's why they're hard. Just think back to this last year. Uh, Let's say that you desire security and recognition and you find that in your work. Then your office shuts down, your benefits are cut, you lose your job. That's uncomfortable. Let's say you desire approval or pleasure from being around friends or going on trips. Then everything shuts down. That's uncomfortable. Or let's say that you desire stability and you find that in a healthy society or politics or a thriving economy. 2020 was not your year. Again, that's discomfort. And I hope you hear me here. We could spend a lot of time debating the externals, right? Why obstructions were there. Uh, But that's not what I'm interested in. Rather, with wisdom from God, looking at the internal, the desires, many of which aren't bad desires, but asking ourselves the right question, why were we uncomfortable? And then asking in that discomfort, how do we respond? That's where James says we have a choice. Back up to verse four. Let endurance have its full effect. I mentioned earlier how endurance comes from the root word, meaning to remain. But with endurance, a prefix has been added. It's hupo minnow, to remain under. If we want to let endurance have its full effect, we must remain under the discomfort of whatever's blocking our desires from reaching the thing that was satisfying us. That's not easy. But with God's joy and God's wisdom, we can evaluate our desires from God's perspective. And then we can direct them either to be satisfied in or surrendered to God. Satisfied because God meets that need or surrendered to because he doesn't have that for us at this time. Paul is a great model for this. Three times he prays to God to take away a trial that he is experiencing. What's his desire? It's to be strong and effective in ministry. It's not a bad desire. 
But God refines him by revealing that his desire for strength and ministry is not satisfied in himself or his own power. And so he redirects his desires to be satisfied in God, who is his strength. And you know what happens after Paul redirects his desire? The trial doesn't go away. The obstruction is still there. But for Paul, the trial was done. And that's the thing, as God redirects our hearts, the obstruction doesn't always leave, but the trial will be over. Remaining under trials is hard. More often than not, rather than remaining under, what we're tempted to do is to shove down, to reconnect with that thing that's been satisfying us, to find a way around the obstruction, or to find another idol, something else that will satisfy us. Another way we shove down is by distracting. I think that's why I read so much this last year. Uh, I read books that I purposefully avoided reading in high school, and I liked them, (laughs) right? We just put our heads down, we distract, we watch the latest show, series and just wait for that obstruction to pass and for things to go back to normal. So what I want to challenge you in this week, and I think the slide's up already, is to ask some questions. And what you can even do is grab a piece of paper and you can uh, write it here. Ask God to show you, hey, what is the trial that I faced in this last year? You can start in March and just Work your way forward month by month. Asking God, what is the desire that I was looking to have met? And where was that desire being met? And Lord, as I look in your word with wisdom, can that desire be met in you or does it need to be surrendered? That's how we remain under rather than shoving down. You know, if you're really brave, you can even go further back the trials of the past 10 years, past 20 years. Here's the thing. Uh, If that idol still holds command in our heart, the best case scenario is that God in his loving grace will allow that obstruction to return so that we can endure and grow. We endure with joy and wisdom remaining under rather than shoving down. And then James calls us to persevere. Thinking back to those early first century Christians, as they're uh, dispersed from Jerusalem, they're disconnected from community, as well as from the teaching of the apostles, right? That's a huge transition. And uh, we know that faith is always at risk when there are transitions. Uh, We see this a lot with students as they head off to college. Uh, I know here at Cyprus, there's a good number of you who will be leaving in the next few months and heading off to school. Uh, Others of you, you're one year away, two years away, three years away. And, uh, you know, we see often as, as students are packing up and they're heading off, uh, they're making a choice when it comes to their faith. Am I going to take this with me or am I going to leave this 
at home. And as the early Christians scattered throughout Judea and Samaria, away from their spiritual parents, the question I imagine they are asking is, how do I hold on to, how do I grow in this faith that I've received? I think that's why James writes, starting in verse 16, don't be deceived, my brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, who does not change like the shifting shadows. By his own choice, he gave us birth by the word of truth, so that we would be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Then verse 21, therefore, ridding yourselves of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent, humbly receive the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. I think what James wants them to see is that wherever they are, God's word is what births and nourishes spiritual life. And notice how James uh, lays out the connection between them and the word. Uh, The word is not centralized in a place or in a person. It's not in Jerusalem. It's not in Peter or John or James. The word is implanted in them. It's been internalized as they've humbly received it and they have taken it with them. Uh, We know that because of what we read in Acts 8. It says, Acts 8 verse 4, those who had been scattered from Jerusalem preached the word wherever they went. You see, their faith was able to grow and the disconnect from their leaders and from community because it was in them. It had been internalized and that's what allowed new communities to form, new leaders to develop. Jesus uses a similar picture in the Gospels. Rather than a seed that's been implanted, he uses a different picture. Matthew 4, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. It's the same idea. God's words are consumed, and as they're internalized, they give us life. I think we're familiar with this idea. But oftentimes, what I hear uh, from Christians is, hey, I like the church, I like the people, I'm just not being fed. And I have a hard time with that. Not because I'm on staff and like locked in here or anything, uh, but because of what I read Jesus say in John chapter four. He's um, alone, his disciples have gone, and uh, he gets into this conversation at a well with a Samaritan woman. And they come back and they're like, Jesus, are you, are, are you hungry? Like, you need to eat something. Jesus says, I got food, bread that you don't know about. And then listen to what he says. My food is to do the will of him who sent me. My food is to do the will of him who sent me. You see, we internalize the word of God by hearing and by doing. That's what nourishes us. That's what keeps us growing. A few weeks ago, uh, we took my parents out for dinner on Mother's Day, and uh, we went to this new ice cream place. 
And it was incredible. They had all these new flavors. And so I'm going in, I'm looking at them all. I'm trying to narrow it down like what I want. And so I did what any self-respecting American would do. I said, I would like to try a sample. And she looks at me and says, oh, I'm sorry, we're not offering samples right now. And I was devastated. So what do I do? Do I play it safe? Do I risk it all? Church, I gambled. And uh, if you don't hear anything else I say this morning, don't. Don't gamble. (laughs) I regretted it. You know, and I think we can agree that whatever happens this year, like samples will be one of the last things to come back. And uh, I was thinking about samples, and I realized that when I sample, uh, especially at the grocery store, uh, I really only have one thing in mind, like, do I like this? But here's the truth. 99% of the time, when I sample something, I have absolutely no intention of buying it. No intention of taking it with me. Uh, When I go to HEB, I get the sushi roll every single time and I have never once walked out of the store with it. That's the way it is with these samples. And uh, like I'll walk up, I'll try it, that person's looking at me, they're like, so what do you think? A glimmer of hope in their eye. I'm like, oh, that's good. And then we pull this little maneuver. I'll be back around. Right, no you won't. They know it. And I think if we're honest, coming to church, hearing a message, I think there's a temptation for us to just sample. We want to hear God's word. We want to evaluate if we like it or not. But I'm not sure we really want to take it with us. And here's the thing, I'm in this boat. I'm way more often sitting where you're sitting, figuratively, rather than standing up here. So this is me. What James says in verse 22 was that when we think we're going to be nourished by hearing what God says and not doing it, we are deceiving ourselves. But verse 25, the one who looks intently into the perfect law of freedom and perseveres in it is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer who works this person will be blessed in what he does. That's the second word, persevere. And it's remain again, but it's para mano, to remain beside, to remain with, to keep it close. It's rather than grabbing a sample, it's uh, putting it into your cart and saying, this is coming with me. I need this. And then taking it home, cooking it up, serving it to your family, and eating. I think that's the picture of this word that James would have us see. He also tells us what happens when we don't. When we try to get by sampling the word of God and not taking it with us. We move on and we forget. Like someone looking at themselves in a mirror They move on, and because they move on so quickly, James says, they forget what they saw. For us as Christians, I think one of the pitfalls we need to avoid is always moving on to the next thing to consume. 
right? The next sermon, the next podcast, the next Christian bestseller. And we convince ourselves that we're learning and that we're growing as we take in more and more, but we move on and we forget. We are like what Paul warns Timothy, people who are always learning but never arriving at a knowledge of the truth. Or to say it another way, always hungry, but never feasting. I think we can all agree that we're in a time of transition, whether as a society, church, or individually. And with every transition, we have a choice. Are we gonna take this with us? Or are we going to leave it behind. So I'm going to challenge you in anything this week. It's this, first, come to church hungry. First Peter, he writes, chapter 2, verse 2, like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the word, so that it may grow, so that by it you may grow in salvation. Come to church hungry. I was thinking the last few days, like, what would this actually look like? And I was reminded of a sermon uh, that was given uh, pretty early on in the church. Uh, in fact, uh, the Christians that James writing to, many of them uh, would have been there and heard as Peter stood up, filled with the Holy Spirit, and preaches the word of God. And it says in Acts that they are cut in their heart. And they ask, brothers, what do we do? That's what hunger looks like. You know, as teachers, we want to, you know, give you clear steps, give you clear instructions to follow through with. But the response has to be birthed out of a hunger. And that hunger can only be produced by the Holy Spirit. So this week, I want to challenge you. Pray. Ask God to make you hungry for his word. And then take it with you. If you don't want to carry your Bible, print off James 1. Put it on note cards. If you have a spare 15 seconds, just take it out. Read through it. Give it your attention. Because what happens when we give something our attention, we start to notice it around us. If you've ever been in the market for a new car, you know this. You start noticing cars all over the road. Or if you're trying to paint a room in your house, you notice paint colors or if you're preparing a wedding and you go to a wedding, like you're noticing the table settings, the silverware, everything, right? As we look at James 1 this week, as we feast on it, the Holy Spirit's gonna call our attention uh, to our circumstances and our choices where this applies. That brings us to kind of a second challenge, and that has to do with uh, what it is we actually do when we gather here. I don't know about you, but at our house, uh, Sunday is meal prep Sunday. Uh, We make one or two meals. uh, We eat one, and then we box up the rest for the rest of the week. And that's what we're doing here. This isn't just a meal. This is also a preview of what you're going to be eating this week. So I invite you, read James 1, soak in it. Preview James 2, come hungry, come ready for meal prep. 
So as we close out, uh, there's a few songs I've been listening to on repeat this last week. Uh, One of them is The Blessing, right? Which takes, if you haven't heard it, it takes these words from Numbers. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May his face shine upon you and give mercy to you. And you know, I love that idea of receiving blessing from God. Uh, My family knows that uh, I love receiving things. I loved gifts growing up. Uh, I grew up in a time uh, where kids' game shows were really popular. And the best thing you could get in a kids' game show uh, was a shopping spree, right? Where you get 10 minutes in Toys R Us to get everything you can, just shoving it all in your cart. And uh, I would actually be up at night in bed, stressed, wondering like what I would do if I won a shopping spree. How do I make sure I acquire all that it is that I want to acquire and don't leave anything behind on the shelf? And you know, I I read Ephesians chapter one where he writes that we are blessed in the heavenly places by every spiritual blessing in Christ. You know, and I ask God, how do I make sure with this shopping spree mentality How do I make sure that I get it all? How do I receive all the blessing that I could possibly have? Twice in this passage, James calls our attention to blessings that we receive. Verse 12, blessed is the one who endures trials. In verse 25, the one who perseveres in God's word will be blessed in what he does. I'm gonna close with this. I don't know how you do presents in your house, but in our house growing up, There's only one way. You sit on the couch, close your eyes, and you have your hands out. And you wait to receive. And you know, I think that's the posture that James would call us to. As we endure trials, as we persevere in God's word, we sit, we remain, and we receive. And you know what? That's not a place that we'll really want to move on from. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for this morning. God, we thank you that you're here. Would your work accomplish your purposes? It's the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Thank you.